Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, They Took Offense at Him, Losing Your Mind to Find Your Way. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July the 8th, 2012. A time is coming, said the desert dweller, St. Anthony, when men will go mad, and when they see someone who is not mad, they will attack him, saying, you are mad, you are not like us. Anthony wasn't like most people, that's for sure. He was an uneducated cop born in the year 251 into a Christian family of peasant farmers. When he was 18, his parents died, leaving him to care for his younger sister. Six months later, the gospel reading in church one Sunday was Matthew 19, verse 2. If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Anthony put his sister into the care of nuns, sold his possessions, and attached himself to an ascetic on the fringe of his village. Later, he went deep into the desert alone. But people followed him there for advice, and for a while he offered counsel. But later still, he returned to his life of solitary spirituality in the vast loneliness of the Egyptian desert. Jesus' family thought he was mad. They tried to take custody of him. We read, he's lost his senses, they said. John writes that his brothers didn't believe in him. The villagers said he was insane and demon-possessed. Boyhood friends in Nazareth tried to kill him. The religious experts said he was a glutton and drunkard who partied with sinners. Many of his closest supporters stopped following him. At the end of three years of public ministry, political pundits complained that he told people not to pay their taxes. And so, he was executed. In this week's Gospel, those who knew him best took offense at him. Literally, they were scandalized. For his part, Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. He sent out his twelve disciples in pairs to village after village, warning them in advance about what they could expect. The Old Testament story this week about David shows how God looks at things differently than we do. David was the last and the least of Jesse's seven sons. The first six sons had all the marks of regal authority. But God told Samuel, the Lord does not look at things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. David might have looked like a ladies' man, handsome and ruddy, but God directed Samuel, rise and anoint him. He is the one. And so in this week's Old Testament reading, the least likely political successor was anointed king of Israel and grew into its greatest leader ever. David, we read, became more and more powerful. 
And this week's psalmist even rhapsodized about the city of the great king, that God makes her secure forever. That nationalistic rhetoric was badly mistaken. 400 years later, Babylon conquered Jerusalem in 586 BC. Enemy troops ransacked the city, subjugated the land, enslaved its people, and installed a puppet government. They left behind the poor and the weak for dead, and exiled the best and the brightest to Babylon. And so God sent Ezekiel, the priest, to those exiles. Ezekiel describes beleaguered Israel as a people of rebellion and revolt in this week's prophetic reading. He describes himself as overwhelmed at God's call on him. The sacred scroll that he symbolically ate tasted sweet, but its contents were bitter indeed. The message that Ezekiel conveyed to the exiles was one of lament, mourning, and woe. Why? Because the house of Israel was not willing to listen to you because they are not willing to listen to me, said Yahweh. And so for faithfulness to his divine call, Ezekiel was the prophet without honor among his own people. And in the epistle for this week, the Corinthians similarly spurned the Apostle Paul. They complained that Paul was a hypocrite, bold in his letters, but underwhelming in person. In contrast to his weighty and forceful letters, they mocked his physical presence as unimpressive. His speaking, they said, amounts to nothing. Invoking bitter irony, Paul apologized for preaching free of charge and admitted that he was not a trained speaker. The Corinthians flattered themselves with some super apostles who commended themselves as superior and who were as slick as they were expensive. But Paul warned the Corinthians that the super apostles were really pseudo apostles who exploited them. And he turned the tables on the Corinthians with the paradox of a gospel of divine strength in human weakness. Anthony, Jesus, David, Ezekiel, and Paul. They all embodied the stark contrast between the sacred folly of God's kingdom and his call and the secular wisdom of worldly ways. So does the poet-farmer Wendell Berry, born in 1934. Berry describes these two very different ways to live in a favorite poem of mine. It's called Manifesto, The Mad Farmer Liberation Front. Love the quick profit, the annual raise, vacation with pay. Want more of everything ready-made. Be afraid to know your neighbors and to die. And you will have a window in your head. Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to die for profit, they will let you know. 
So friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the world. Love the Lord. Work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Denounce the government and embrace the flag. Hope to live in that free republic for which it stands. Give your approval to all you cannot understand. Praise ignorance for what man has not encountered, he has not destroyed. Ask the questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into the mold. Call that profit. Prophesy such returns. Put your faith in the two inches of hummus that will build under the trees every thousand years. Listen to carrion. Put your ear close and hear the faint clattering of the songs that are to come. Expect, expect the end of the world. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. So long as women do not go cheap for power, please women more than men. Ask yourself, Will this satisfy a woman satisfied to bear a child? Will this disturb the sleep of a woman near to giving birth? Go with your love to the fields, lie down in the shade, rest your head in her lap. Swear allegiance to what is nighest your thoughts. As soon as the generals and the politicos can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign to mark the false trail, the way you did not go. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. Wendell Berry, the Mad Farmer Liberation Front. For books this week, I review Sylvia Plath. The title, Ariel, the Restored Edition. A facsimile of Plath's manuscript, reinstating her original selection and arrangement. New York, HarperCollins, 2004, 213 pages. Two years after Sylvia Plath died by suicide in 1963, her husband and poet Ted Hughes edited and published a collection of 40 of her unpublished poems under the title Ariel. As Frida Hughes, daughter of Plath and Hughes, explains in her brief introduction, the edition published by her father was a somewhat different collection from the manuscript her mother left behind. Hughes removed about a dozen poems from Plath's lineup and replaced them with a dozen different poems that were also part of Plath's final work, but nevertheless distinct from the manuscript for Ariel. 
This book, then, exactly follows the arrangement of her last manuscript as she left it. In addition to the facsimiles of Plath's original manuscript that make up the second half of the book, there are also facsimile drafts of the poem Ariel, one of which is handwritten, along with two appendices, the poem The Swarm in its facsimile, and then a script of the BBC broadcast New Poems by Sylvia Plath. The facsimiles include Plath's own handwritten editing in progress. Frida Hughes defends her father from the vilifications he received for his own version of Ariel, and even for his ownership of the copyrights, which, as she points out, he used to care for her and her brother. He quietly and lovingly brought me up, she writes. Some of the poems that he eliminated dismembered family members with what she describes as extreme ferocity. And the poems he added gave a, gave a broader perspective. Says the daughter about her father, My father had a profound respect for my mother's work, in spite of being one of the subjects of its fury. For him, the work was the thing, and he saw the care of it as a means of tribute and a responsibility. Nor was her mother a saint, despite her elevation to the feminist icon. Worse, in Hughes's mind, the point of anguish at which her mother killed herself was taken over by strangers, possessed, and reshaped by them. Plath's suicide, then, was not the total sum of her experience, says her daughter, but only one aspect of the many complex layers of her inner being. Sylvia Plath, Ariel, the Restored Edition. For film this week, I review a documentary called The Universe of Keith Haring from 2008. Even if you've never heard the name Keith Haring, 1958-1990, You've almost certainly seen his graphic line art with its signature style. On a subway car, a mural in an office, an outdoor sculpture, t-shirts and hats, a swatch watch, or a bottle of absolute vodka. Keith Haring was born into an all-American family in Cutstown, Pennsylvania. He attended church, youth group, and summer camp and recalls his paper route from ages 12 to 16. After graduating from high school in 1976, for six months he studied commercial art in Pittsburgh. Then in 1978, he moved to New York City. Only a few years later, Herring was a global phenomenon. In 1982, people lined up to see him in Japan. When Madonna married Sean Penn in 1985, Andy Herring took Andy Warhol as his date. This documentary draws upon extensive interviews with Herring's family, art critics, close friends like Yoko Ono, and Herring himself. The film doesn't dig very deeply into his person or his work, and the film is entirely uncritical. 
but it's nevertheless fascinating to watch him work. He never made sketches, but rather drew and painted spontaneously. Herring was diagnosed with HIV in 1988 and died of AIDS at the age of 31 in February 1990. Today, his works are featured in galleries all around the world. The Universe of Keith Herring And finally this week for poetry in the 4th of July weekend, we've published a poem by the Nobel Prize winner Szczeslaw Milos, who lived from 1911 to 2004. It's called A Nation. The purest of nations on earth when it's judged by a flash of lightning, but thoughtless and sly in everyday toil. Pitiless to its widows and orphans, pitiless to its old people, stealing a crust of bread from a child's hand. Ready to offer their lives to draw heaven's wrath on their foes, smiting their enemy with the screams of orphans and women. Entrusting power to men with the eyes of traitors in gold, elevating men with the conscience of brothel keepers. The best of its sons remain unknown. They appear once only to die on the barricades. Bitter tears of that people cut a song off in the middle. And when the song dies away, noisy voices tell jokes. A shadow stands in a corner pointing to his heart. Outside a doghouse to the invisible planet. Great nation invincible nation, ironic nation. They know how to distinguish truth and yet to keep silent. They camp on marketplaces, conversing in wisecracks. They deal in old door handles stolen from ruins. A nation in crumpled caps, carrying all they own. They go west and south searching for a place to live. It has no cities, no monuments, no painting or sculpture. Only the word passed from mouth to mouth and prophecy of poets. A man of that nation, standing by his son's cradle, repeats words of hope, always, till now, in vain. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, July 8th, 2012, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.